Hello, friends and neighbors, and welcome to A Very Good Year, a new podcast where we invite a guest, a filmmaker or writer or actor, comedian, musician, anybody who loves movies, really, to pick their favorite year of movies and talk to us all about that year. I'm your host, Jason Bailey, and across the mic and across the country from me is my co-host, Michael Hull. And our guest today is a co-host and critic for NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. She also previously wrote and edited for the New York Times and Slate and hosted the excellent podcast Represent. Uh, Her new book is called Wannabe, Reckonings with the Pop Culture That Shapes Me. And that's out this summer from Harper One. Say hello to our good friend, Aisha Harris. Hi, Aisha. Hey, Jason and Mike. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for coming on. You were one of the, you were on that initial list. We were like, we got to get Aisha on. She's always got something interesting to say. I, I will tell you, when you told me the year that you wanted to do, I was <laughs> like, I was surprised. Um, <laughs> it's not one of the years that people often talk about when this conversation comes up. Yeah, um, yeah. So so let's start there. Tell us why, what year you're doing and why you wanted to talk about this year. So I'm talking about 1959. And I'm not going to sit here and try to argue that this is like absolutely the greatest year for film. Um, You know, there's a lot of films from this year that I either have like a man relationship with or like I just still haven't caught up with. Um, So uh, it's 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 not it's not up there with like 39 or I don't know, 2007, like all the years that we like to tick off. Generally speaking, we're talking about these things, but some of my favorite movies or movies that I love that I find very interesting for various reasons, a lot of them came from this year. And I never really put two and two together until you asked me. And when I was looking around and poking around for years, it was like, wait a minute, like 1959 had some had some interesting things going on. And I think what I really found interesting about the movies that I chose for this was the fact that 1959 is kind of this weird era for Hollywood, especially where the old ways of making film are making way for new ways of making film, particularly when it comes to the production code, the Hays Code, and what's allowed and what's not. And what a lot of my films on this list uh, really have in common is that they are both like stuck in the past of feeling kind of censored in certain ways when it comes to dealing with race or sex, um, but are also sort of looking forward to what would be allowed and also what like how progressive or how um, sort of progressive Hollywood would eventually become. So I I found that kind of common denominator. And I think 1959 is such a crucial sort of uh, entry point into sort of studying the ways that Hollywood really started to change in the 60s. It was like that precursor to everything that came after. Definitely, definitely. Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm curious to hear, you know, the 50s in general are a decade that sort of gets shafted when we talk about you know, the sort of the great eras in movie history, because it's not yet the new Hollywood of the 70s. It's not the sort of golden age of studio filmmaking and so forth. But you're the second guest that we've had to pick some to pick not just the 50s, but this from the back half of the 50s. Whereas, you know, recently uh, uh, Quentin Tarantino had had talked a bit about what a terrible decade the fifties were for, for (laughs) studio, you know, for, for American movie making and so forth. Like what, what do you, when you hear people run down the fifties, like, you know, what do you think that's born out of and, and how do you sort of respond to that? 
Well, I mean, obviously the 50s was Hollywood in transition, as I've sort of already noted. And I think part of that, so much of that was coming from TV and the rise of TV and how filmmakers were trying to compete with that and kind of panicking about it. Yeah. Panicking, totally panicking. So you have all these like attempts with 3d and Technicolor and uh, what, what was the other one? Like uh, stereo stereoscope, no periscope. Cinemascope. Cinemascope. Yes. (laughs) Uh, So you have like all those very like variations that they're trying to do these sort of gimmicky things. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same time, it's like the fifties had some of the greatest movies that like the movies that we call the greatest um obviously singing in the rain uh the bandwagon i'm naming musicals but i also think (laughs) that that could also be sort of part of why people tend to be against this decade because the golden age of musicals is considered to be the 40s and the 30s um but especially the 40s and then the 50s it kind of wanes but there's so many great things happening in both Hollywood and in international cinema, um, you know, this is obviously when the French New Wave is becoming a thing, and we yeah. still have the the we still have lots of noir neo noirs and the rise of all these ho- like celebrities um, and actors like Marilyn Monroe and and Rock Hudson. So I don't know. I feel like the fifties were not that bad. It, 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 it wasn't no. the fallow the fallow period that someone like Tarantino made. <laughs> right. Well, I, <laughs> I mean, think and I. It is. I think the thing that's really interesting, too, now that you mention it is like, yes, first of all, yeah, there are all of these incredible, you know, uh, especially that sort of that that ilk of the the Gene Kelly, Stanley Donnan musical, uh, big, big widescreen Technicolor musical extravaganza. And then at the same time, we also this is the beginning of the sort of the naturalistic method acting period in drama like this is, you know. Yeah. Brando doing streetcar and on the waterfront. This is James Dean's, you know, all three of his movies. Like mm-hmm. it's it, maybe there's not the sort of tonal consistency from uh, film to film the way that there is in the seventies or the thirties, but like they're trying things in the fifties in a way that I don't think we give it credit for just because the culture at large seems so sort of safe and vanilla, if that makes yeah. any sense. I, I completely agree. Um, yeah, it's it's such a it's such a rich and interesting time to think about, and yeah, I am glad I picked a, a mo- movies from the fifties because it's fun to talk about. <laughs> it is. Well, I want to know I, this. I didn't envision this when we when we put the show together, but one of my favorite things about it has been talking to writers and film historians that I admire about how they got to where they are in terms of the their initial interest in movies from before they were born. Like I, especially when I have a guest who is, who has a year that is well before they were born. Like, I want to know what brought, what made you the cinephile that you are? What was your, you know, your journey to, to the place where this is the kind of choice that you would make for a show like this? Well, part of that story actually begins with one of the movies on this list. Uh, So I don't know if we want to get into it now, but I will say like, I got into movies at a young age, like old movies at a young age. Um, And there is just something about it that seemed very, uh, that was just sort of mesmerizing to me and captivating about that time period. And obviously I didn't really know that much better about like how things weren't really all that great. And (laughs) that was part of, (laughs) that was part of why Hollywood was so good at, at weaving these fantasies because it made things, it sort of, 
sanded down the edges for the most part for the way these things actually happened in real life. And obviously yeah. as a black person, like living in that time period would not, I would not be able to live like Audrey Hepburn, you know, right. <laughs> in, in funny face or something like that. Sure. Um, sure. Uh, although, you know, there, there was Josephine Baker, but like still uh, those, those are exceptions, <laughs> uh, very big exceptions. But um, you know, as I grew older and realized that you could actually sort of make a living out of, writing or make somewhat of a living off of writing about film <laughs> uh <laughs> i was like you know what this is something that i i love to do i love uh being able to learn about history through film i think that was one yeah. of the my my entry points was you know i'd watch movies and then i would read about them and read about the history of the like behind the making of that film but also the social issues that they might be wrestling with and so it all led me to eventually going to NYU for grad school and getting my cinema studies degree and nerding out and reading, you know, Eisenstein and Sartre and all those other <laughs> great philosophers and decoders of the of the cinema, as as they call it. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. Mike, in in uh, in over a dozen shows now, I'm not sure that we've ever had a guest give us as good of a, a smooth transition into the headlines um as <laughs> as the one we just got um so yes let's talk a little bit about what was happening uh, socially and politically and uh on on the worldwide stage outside of the glorious movie palaces of the 1950s here's mike with some headlines 1959 started with a literal and figurative bang when Fulgencio Batista fled Havana on January 1st and Fidel Castro's revolutionary mountaineers took control of Cuba. January 1st, 1959, and we are still big fucking mad about it. <laughs> I know about that. That's the thing in Godfather 2, right? That's in Godfather 2. I like to do oh, history cool. things that have been in movies. All right. Thank that's you. correct. Thank you. All right. Uh, I'm smart. That's correct. Yep. Little kiss on the cheek. Um, there were some other things happening around that didn't make the movie, but it's fine. Uh, Eisenhower pr was president. Kennedy and Nixon were running to replace him. We were already trying not to talk about the war in Korea, uh, but Mao and Khrushchev were very much still alive and very much in power. Nuclear technology was moving at an incredible pace. Tests were still happening. Bombs were getting bigger and bigger and bigger. They were several multiple times uh, bigger than the bombs that were dropped from Japan at this point, and they were still doing tests. So it was a very nerve-wracking time to be alive, uh, <laughs> even though we were still trying to put a brave face on. You know, the civil mm -hmm. rights movement was happening in the United States, but we hadn't gotten to the sort of, it was still sort of being talked about as a local problem. You know, that was something that was happening in Alabama. We hadn't quite gotten to the 60s protests yet, where we started to sort of acknowledge that, like, you know, black people in Chicago didn't have it great either. Um, right. And and starting to have the Vietnam protests, the anti-war protests, we hadn't gotten to that point yet, but the seeds of all of those things were were already starting to sprout. I don't know what everybody was so nervous about with this nuclear tech. Like I've seen, I've seen those educational films. They just had to duck and cover under their desk, right? And then <laughs> yeah. they're, they're set if there's a nuke. What's the problem? Yes. All right. yes. <laughs> yes, and placebo will save you. Uh, on January 2nd, the Russian Luna 1 module became the first man-made object to escape Earth's gravity. It was supposed to actually hit the moon, but they missed. There was a mistake that's well understood, but it will take too long to get into. But the cool thing is that now the Luna 1 module is orbiting the sun somewhere between Earth and Mars. Cool. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. 
Uh, I assume Elon will pick it up for his presidential library on the Red Planet eventually. Um, on January 3rd, Alaska was admitted to the U.S. as the 49th state. I swear to God, I'm not going to do every day in 1959. There was a lot <laughs> happening in right January. Up right up top. Uh, <laughs> on January 4th was the beginning of the Leopoldville riots in the Congo, a major step forward in getting the shitty Belgians out of there. So there was a lot happening in the beginning of 1959, and a lot of it was making uh, powerful white people very nervous. Um, on January 12th, Motown Records was founded by Barry Gordy Jr. in Detroit. That, can you read can you read that one again? That's my favorite one. On January 12th, Motown Records was founded by Gary Barry Gordy Jr. in Detroit. I love it. Okay, that's all. Uh, <laughs> forever improving America and the world. Uh, mm-hmm. February 3rd was the day the music died when Bunny Holly, Richie Valens, the Big Bopper, and pilot Roger Peterson all died in a plane crash that cemented their otherwise unlikely place in 80s pop culture. Here's I don't, my question. When do we get the Big Bopper movie? Like we had, we had the Buddy Holly story. We got La Bamba. Uh, yeah. You call it, you know, Hello Baby or what? Like it can't be worse than Bohemian Rhapsody. That's all I'm saying. In my mind, <laughs> uh, in my mind, there was a TV version with John Goodman, but I'm pretty sure that's just in my mind. Oh my I would. That, that would have been. I, I will buy the ticket for that today. Um, yes, yes. Well, I think John Goodman's a little too old for that, but yeah. <laughs> no such thing. No such thing. They can, they, have you seen, you saw The Irishman. They can de-age people now. It's great. That's true. That's true. <laughs> In March uh, of 1959, Hawaii became the 50th U.S. state. So we went on a little state adding spree, but we haven't done that again since then. Yeah. yeah. Uh, in June, the United States Postal Service tried to deliver what they called missile mail where they launched a bag of circulars in a rocket. It turned out to not be a very efficient way of delivering the mail, but (laughs) there's a lot of really amazing podcast episodes about missile mail. So check that out if you're so inclined. It's a hell of a good story. It's a super 1959, like (laughs) going to the moon, you know, we're all going to have like robot maids. It's a super 1959 story. It's very cool. They dreamt very big and you got to admire that. That's right. Uh, in November, the MOS transistor was invented by an Egyptian-American named Mohammed Atala and a Korean-American named Dewan Kong, which went on to become the most manufactured device in history. It's basically what makes computers possible. Um, so it is the foundation of the digital revolution that has made modern life possible. So fuck those guys, obviously. Michael um, <laughs> it's, because, it's because of them that we have twitter i, yeah, I mean really all like, right fair to talk to you guys i'm not sure anyway uh i wouldn't miss it if i didn't have it right an important cultural news uh the el camino was introduced so that's great uh the miles davis record kind of blue was recorded and released in 1959 is that just like do is that just like widely acknowledged as being like everyone's jazz gateway record is that the like is that the one that everybody listens to in seventh grade and then is like hey jazz is cool right is that or was i, that I just think me? so and but i think the reason it holds up is because you can listen to it again in your like creeping 40s at yes. least so far as i know and it's it really it is it holds up and how many things hold up from seventh grade bro seventh you grade heard it. <laughs> you heard it here first folks miles davis kind of blue good record <laughs> 
We're going on go, going on record with that fire take. Uh, the Marx Brothers made their last television appearance in the Incredible Jewel Robbery on General Electric Theater. I know this is just here for me, Mike, and I appreciate it, and I thank you for it. Uh, I will tell you that I spent uh, 25, 30 years of my life trying to track down the Incredible Jewel Robbery, and I finally saw it on a Marx Brothers DVD set that came out like five or... 10 years ago and it's not that good <laughs> Jason <laughs> that it was time for them to retire it was it was really anticlimactic you guys oh. <laughs> uh, Mattel debuted the first Barbie doll in 1959 and the Twilight Zone premiered on CBS Yes, Yay. one of my Yay. favorite shows of all time yeah, show. that's a good one good we're okay. firing off more hot takes tonight Twilight Zone yeah Good show. <laughs> Good show. Good show. Some have made it this far into this podcast and don't know. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Los Angeles Dodgers beat the Chicago White Sox four games to two to win the World Series. The Boston Celtics swept the Minneapolis Lakers to win the NBA championship. The Montreal Canadiens beat the Toronto Maple Leafs four games to one in the sport Canadians care about most because it's the only one they can beat us at. USA! USA! <laughs> USA! And Lee Petty won the very first Daytona 500, starting an American racing dynasty that persists to this day. His kids are still, or his descendants are still dying in uh, car crashes in 2022. So. Wow. Hopefully not. Hopefully not. <laughs> but was there a World Cup this year? There was no World Cup in 1959 because they didn't respect women's sports yet. That would not, uh, that would not come until later. Unfortunately, uh, that was yes. the best question anybody's ever asked on this entire podcast. <laughs> you know, I told you I listened to the show. I was just saying, <laughs> I was waiting for it. Thank you, Aisha. Thank you, Mike. And uh, what the hell? Let's hear a top five. So we're going out. We're going alphabetical this time, yes. Uh, yes. which always entails us doing a bit of quick uh, alphabetization in the pre-show. But we're ready and we're good. And Aisha Harris, what is the first of your top five films of 1959? Well, the first on my list is also my most recent uh personal discovery within the last mm -hmm. like three or four years um so it's like the freshest to me mm -hmm. and that would be black orpheus mágico porque fala mas todos os violões são mágicos eles cantam e não somente os dos cantores meu dono nem é cantor é um condutor de bonde da grande cidade directed by Marcel Camus. It is, it won the Palme d'Or at the, at the Cannes Film Festival that year. It is about, uh, it's based off of, of course, uh, uh, Orpheus and Eurydice, but also off of um, this play that was written by Vinicius de Monet. Um, and it is set in Brazil, but it's an international co-production. Um, you know, Marcel Camus was a French director, and then it was also done in collaboration with Brazil and uh, Italy. And so, to say that this film is not a little bit problematic would be maybe an understatement. <laughs> um, you know, it is a white Frenchman going in and going to Brazil with a cast of uh, Black Brazilian performers and, you know, making this very 
there have been a lot of criticisms about the film for the fact that it is uh, romanticizing in many ways the idea of what being a poor, impoverished Black person in Brazil is like. Um, it's set during Carnival, and there's just lots of dancing and music, and it has this very just like in many ways, fantastical vision of what uh, Brazil is like, or specifically Rio. Um, and But I am so drawn to this movie in part because, especially exactly because of that. Um, and it makes me feel like a really bad American, but <laughs> <laughs> what can I say? Um, I think the film's strengths and weaknesses lie in the fact that oftentimes it feels like a uh, it feels like a travel log in some ways, mm-hmm. where there are just long sequences where you're just watching uh, the uh, the people in this community dancing, singing, playing these instruments in the in the streets, and getting ready for Carnival. And it's just very festive, and the and the colors are beautiful and, and gorgeous, and the actors are beautiful and gorgeous. I mean, Marpessa Dawn, who plays Eurydice here, is she was actually. Uh. Actually, an American, uh, born in I think uh, uh, Pennsylvania, and oh, wow. she is um, she was half Filipina and half uh, Black American, um, but she spoke French and and uh, you know she was she's beautiful. Like she hadn't really had that much acting experience before this. Um, mm-hmm. This is one of her earliest and best known role, but I think she's just she has such an air about her that is so um, breathtaking. And her interactions with Breno Mello, who plays Orfu, um, they're just like, they smolder. They're beautiful. Mm. And mm-hmm. and it's just really breathtaking to watch. And of course, this movie was also, um, in many ways, the cultural exporter of uh, Bossa Nova and yeah. that whole scene, which again, it's all fraught. You know, people around the world <laughs> took from this movie what they wanted to take from it. But um you know, when you when you reach back into the 50s, you're going to come up with things that are going to be a little iffy and problematic. But I love this movie. It, and I think for me, the, the ending seals it because you have this really terrible, you have two people who are dead, but the main two characters are dead by the end of the film. Uh, but it, it ends with these kids, these kids who are playing the song and they're they're like yeah like the sun is rising it's a new day yes all this tragic stuff happened but like when you when you see the kids dance and they dance like little like charlie brown characters cuz that's the <laughs> way kids dance their arms are just kind of waving flapping and they're just like dancing with abandon and the in the way that only a child can do um yeah. i don't know it's just it 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 seduces me and yeah. even though i find it a little problematic i still can't help but also just bask in how beautiful and um just sumptuous and delightful and sad this story is the movie envelops you it really does like i i will tell you this is one of the lists where i had the most work to do i hadn't i had not seen three of these films and this was one of them um and i put it it's on the criterion channel right now folks uh it's it, it is gorgeous it is striking it is melodramatic it is uh sumptuous i you know mike and i were uh doing a little you know pre-show meeting last night and you know and we were walking through it and i was like okay well have you watched black orpheus yet and he's like not yet i was like watch that next and i swear <laughs> to god i got a I got a text like two hours later and the the the, the entirety of the text was black orpheus two exclamation marks <laughs> it's just yeah yeah it you know you're you're right it has that 
sort of um, outsider's perspective, which can cause some sense of sort of othering. Yes. But it also, there's something that's almost anthrop- uh, anthropological about it, which yeah. in some ways is wonderful because it's like at its best, it's a beautiful documentary about this incredible event, you know, and yeah. to, to have it, to have, uh, to have it documented with that sort of artistry and with that kind of, of, of a camera, uh, with that sort of eye, I don't know. I, I just, I, I think it's, it's really valuable. Yeah. I've read yeah. some of the critique and some of the stuff. I mean, I've, I'm sure you've dug in deeper. Um, but the, but I think, you know, seeing, this entirely black cast playing a myth, right? Like, I mean, this is a a mythological story, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and it's, and it's told at that sort of grand scale. Yeah. Um, and, and like super straight faced, you know, like there's no winking, there's no sort of nods to, you know, it's just like, it's played and it's this grand myth played on, on a mythological scale that I think like, a lot of times those those things get sort of, um, you know, I mean, the names are Greek, right? The sort of <laughs> versions that come to us are Greek. But even the Greeks acknowledged that all those stories were African and Mesopotamian and that they were, you know, that they were drawing sort of inspiration and, and different versions from all over the place and, and bringing them together into the sort of format that spoke to people at that time, right? And yeah. so to me, like they, to me, they feel like a like a sort of a much more sort of universal human tale mm, a lot mm. of times to me than they do sort of a specifically european even though that's the versions that have come down to us in history right. and to me like to to tell those mythological stories in a brazilian setting you know there's some that's really fantastic like it's i mean and it's beautiful and it's professionally made and all the i mean the people are gorgeous every single one of them and i didn't really <laughs> think the wife was that bad like they're trying to make her out to be bad, but she was enthusiastic. She's having a nice day. She like paid for her own ring on a zero percent loan. I mean, I didn't really find her to be that villainous myself, but yeah, you know, to me, there's something really fantastic about that sort of cross cultural storytelling, and you know, it can it's it's not always done right. I mean, that's right. That's why we have to sort of be on guard about it. You know, yeah, but yeah. to me, this movie is a great and especially for the time it, you know, we watched I watched most of these with my wife who will watch literally anything. So one of the great things about her. Um, but we watched some like it hot right before we watched Black Orpheus because I didn't know what I was in for, you know, and Black Orpheus feels like it was made 20 years later Yeah, mm. to me. I, it was a wonderful yeah. movie. Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, I think one of just the idea that this was movie was even able to get made um, because very few filmmakers had like outside filmmakers outside of Brazil had been able to make films in Brazil. Um, right. And there wasn't that much of a um, or at least from what I understand, um, there weren't a lot of outsiders coming into to film there. And apparently it took uh, Camus a long time to get it made because producers didn't believe in it you know story mm. of <laughs> very familiar mm-hmm. story that still plays out today mm-hmm. was like black cast yep. in brazil yep. what yeah <laughs> um and he spent something like seven months living there before he was finally able to make it um wow. which i think like goes to show that why this is this could have come out a lot worse in terms of yeah. like you know the white outsider 
I, I think that he spent so much time there. And of course, like he, it's not perfect. Like he actually said some pretty ignorant things about black people generally and the people of Brazil uh, while talking about it. These very kind of like James Cameron, like uh, <laughs> infantilizing the, the, the indigenous people. But right. overall, it's a beautiful film. I, I want more people to see it. Yes. Yes. Well, thank you for making sure we saw it. Uh, Aisha Harris, what is your number two alphabetically ranked movie of the year 1959? Imitation of Life. I'm not asking you not to go down there, Laura. I'm telling you. And what makes you think you have that right? Because I love you. Isn't that enough? No, Steve, I'm sorry. All the kids talking behind my back. Is it true? No. Are you black? No, I'm as white as you. You're lying. I'm not. I'd like to hold you in my arms once more. Like you were still my baby. All right. Sarah Jane. Oh, my baby. Oh, Mama. An imitation. An imitation. Imitation of Life is another movie that, and again, like I said, I chose these films in this year in part because I think they are all very, uh, they're dealing with a lot of social issues, either directly or indirectly. And Imitation of Life is, of course, the Douglas Sirk version. There is an earlier version from 1934 that starred Claudette Colbert, and that's based off of a novella. And how, how do we explain this premise? Basically, <laughs> uh, uh, the 1959 version, uh, uh, Lana Turner plays a woman who's like an aspiring actress and she has a, she's a single mother, she has a daughter. And one day she meets a black woman played by Juanita Moore, who is with her daughter. Uh, she meets them at Coney Island and um, she's looking for like an assistant. Lana Turner's character is looking for an assistant and they become friends. Just so happens that the daughter, Juanita Moore's daughter, is white passing. Um, and so people think that Juanita Moore is her maid and they become friends. They all become like a little family, these two single moms and these two daughters are about the same age. Um, but uh, the Sarah Jane character played by Susan Conner, who's the daughter, who's white passing, um, she does not like the fact that her mother is black and she kind of shuns it. And it's it's pathological, all the things you can expect from a 1950s movie that's dealing with these issues. Uh, she's kind of like the classic tragic mulatto. Um, and, you know, Hollywood had made these films before. Um, Pinky right. is another one from that that time, um, mm -hmm. Showboat. Uh, so we'd seen this before, but I think this is probably my favorite of those sort of like race movies that are dealing with the biracial struggling character um in part because douglas sirk is again like camus he is a seductive filmmaker the colors the 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 mise-en-scene the like the whole aesthetic is just like yeah. gorgeous um and then you layer it with this drippy drippy melodrama and like all the pathos of what's going on with these characters um i just i just it's one of these movies that i've seen many times and i've studied it in school it's all it's it's one of those like 
if you go to film school, they're probably going to make you watch this because there's so much going on and so much to parse through here. Yeah. Um, and, and what I also think, like, what I also think is really fascinating about it is the fact that we can go back and look at the 1934 version and kind of see how much time had progressed. Because in the 34 version, which is a little bit closer to the book, the original book, the premise of that is that the Claudette Colbert character, who was the Lana Turner character in the 59 version, she uh, she basically steals the the um the, the her her maid's uh family recipe and makes millions of dollars off of it and then Whoa. she off she offers the maid to she offers her maid like a cut of the profits not even 50 percent. it's less than that she offers her a cut and the maid is like no i'm good i'm just gonna keep on being your assistant like i don't need the Whoa. money and so, you know, Douglas Sirk and the rest of the production team realized that this is 1959. <laughs> we can't do stuff like that anymore. <laughs> Douglas Sirk and... said, that's some bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, we're not going to be able to get away with that. Uh, no. So, so it's it, so it, again, this is like, this is an interesting moment where, right. you know, we have this, as Mike was talking about, like we have the civil rights movement sort of coming to the forefront slowly but surely on a national scale. Um, and of course, like the NAACP and other groups had been for decades, like working with Hollywood. Well, <laughs> I don't know about working with Hollywood, but like pestering <laughs> and really yes. trying to convince Hollywood producers not to make things so racist. Yeah. <laughs> um, and of course, like Sidney Poitier was on the rise at this point. Um, but yeah, I, I just, I, I really love the performances, especially from Juanita Moore. Like this movie really uh, focuses more on the Juanita Moore and Susan Conner performances and of course it's not it's not as it's not all that progressive because you have susan Conner playing this role and she is a jewish mexican woman uh so they still weren't trying to cast actual black right. people <laughs> in these roles it's, it's kind of a replay of showboat a few years earlier when um they cast ava gardner instead of like lena horn was up for that role right. too so it's like right you know, it's not all it's not all perfect, but it's yeah. it's kind of it's Douglas Sirk at his at the top of his game, you know. At his circiest, um, man. Like at his circiest. And I and I yeah. and I love Douglas Sirk. So this yeah. is this is a this is it. <laughs> Have diamonds ever been photographed better? Ooh, I don't know. That, I mean goddamn, like Yeah. <laughs> that's the first time I ever wanted to like read a book about clothes. Was watching <laughs> this this version of this movie. The clothes yeah. and the dresses, yes. Incredible. Yeah. Gorgeous. Yeah. All right. The number three alphabetical movie of the year 1959, Aisha Harris, is... I mean, Hitchcock, yes. Yeah. Yes, it is on my list. Uh, North by Northwest. Cary Grant, Eva Marie Saint, and James Mason as the man of sinister surprises. Apparently, the only performance that will satisfy you is when I play dead. In your very next role, you'll be quite convincing, I assure you. The perfect setup for suspense. With the perfect woman and the perfect crime. As Alfred Hitchcock takes you north by northwest. Yeah! <laughs> Love it. Um, Yes. So again, I, so I recently rewatched this uh, for this 
show having not having watched it in years and so um it was very fun to revisit it and realize how sexy this movie is like yes we can talk about the crop dusting scene which is fantastic and you know the mount rushmore scene which is fine i kind of think the mount rushmore scene has not aged well just like it looks does not look like mount rushmore but it's fine um (laughs) (laughs) um but I, I, I think the fact that, again, we're talking about the sort of waning of the production code and what was allowed yeah. to be said and isn't said, and just the, the sort of like back and forth between the Eva Marie Saint character and Cary Grant and the fact that he, she like stows him away in her, her, uh, her, her caboose, not her caboose, like the, the, <laughs> Whoa, her train Aisha. car. <laughs> oh my goodness. It's a family show. <laughs> Well, you know, but there is a moment where like he talks about her, he he like refers to her uh her her body parts and how they're big and they're all the right places. It's like yeah. it's just walking up to the that line and yep. not quite crossing it, but for yep. the 50s it feels very very, you know, sensual and seductive and you know, this is Hitchcock at his he he had finally found his groove. He had been working in in American Hollywood for years now. And is it my favorite Hitchcock? No, but I do think that Cary Grant. This might be maybe like top three Cary Grant performances. Yeah. Like just yeah. the way he takes this very convoluted <laughs> plot that mm-hmm. like if you think about it too hard is so oh. absurd. And even Hitchcock himself admitted it was oh, yeah. absurd. Um, yeah. But he, he just floats in it in the best way possible. Like he, he fits it like, like yeah. a glove and I, and I love it. Yeah, no, I mean, one of my favorite stories about this movie is I read an interview once with Ernest Lehman, the screenwriter who said, and this was not uncommon from what I understand that he just, he like went into Hitchcock's office and Hitchcock said, okay, I'm going to do a crop dusting sequence. I'm going to do a Mount Rushmore climax. You know, he had like his five Hitchcock set pieces. And he said, that's, that's what's going to be in the movie. So just write what connects him. And he sent him off to write his little, <laughs> write his little script that connected what Hitch wanted to do. Uh, yeah. And this, and it's very much a script that sounds like that, but like, you know, it really is. It's like, you know, watching a Hitchcock movie for the plot is like watching, you know, a musical comedy for the plot. It's like, it's there to get you from one big sequence to the other. Um, yes, and I'm yes. fine with that. I'm totally fine with that. <laughs> Aisha, I have to know now, what are the other two of your top three Cary Grants then? Oh, um, I'd have to say probably His Girl Friday and The Awful Truth. Good. Yes. <laughs> we are we're yes. we're we're two out of three then i would go uh i would probably go bringing up baby before the awful truth but it's close Ooh. yeah it's I, close. I i enjoy that movie but i don't think i love it as much as a lot of people do uh, but yeah yeah i i, I yeah. prefer philadelphia story if we're doing like carrie Grant oh damn Captain okay Hepburn. all right yeah yeah <laughs> all right i can go along with that okay our number four pick for 1959 aisha take it away uh we're going to go with a little Doris Day and Rock Hudson <laughs> and Pillow Talk. This career girl had everything but love. This bachelor had nothing else but. They had absolutely nothing in common except a party line. Oh, would you please get off this line? They believe passionately in the motto, hate thy neighbor. Look, I don't know what's bothering you, but don't take your bedroom problems out on me. Then he met the body that went with the voice he hated. What would you do? 
That's what he did. Yeah. Which in itself feels like a a sort of scandalous uh, movie title for the 50s. Yes. Um, yes. Supposedly, they wanted, they were asked to change it, but uh, change the title. But um, obviously, that didn't happen. Um, yeah. This was Rock Hudson's first comedic role. And... I'm just so glad it exists. Like yeah. to think about what he could have turned. Like he was obviously in the earliest years of his career was sort of the the you know the piece of meat. Like hunk, you're you're hot, and that's kind of yes. all you're you're gonna do. And yes. to see him really play this character who um, is a womanizer and uh, and who has to like he he's he's a he's a total cad in, in all the the best ways possible i think the dialogue is so sharply written it's fluffy him and doris day have the best chemistry um they do there's just something great about how her like sort of prickly quote-unquote virginal uh her, her like uh, persona is sort of chipped away at in this film yeah. and even though the she good, spends the good the movie girl being, the yeah, good yeah. Girl I mean, she, and the bad go and the bad boy. Like that's yes. that's always going to generate tension. And of course, the the other the rest of the cast, Tony Randall, Thelma mm-hmm. Ritter, like they have oh, the best one liners. Like six foot six inches of opportunity doesn't come along all the time. You know, I'm paraphrasing here, but like <laughs> I I just it's it's one of these movies I can watch over and over again. And it, again, it has that sort of, it's walking that line where sex is becoming more acceptable to talk about. Um, and even there's like a little running joke at one point where Rock Hudson, of all, of all people, is pretending to be gay or like yep. suggesting that he might be gay. Like his, he yep. lifts his drink up and puts his pinky up. And there's like a lot of subtleties and things that we, we know now uh, that mm-hmm. make the viewing it even more rich to watch. But yes. yeah, I just I just I think it's such a it's such a fun movie. And it's to me one of the best rom coms of all time. Yeah. No, so. it's terrific. This this again was a new one to me. Uh, and I was telling a friend who was shocked that I hadn't seen it, uh, that I loved it. And it also made me, made me want to go watch Down With Love again, uh, to which she replied, yeah. how did you even watch Down With Love if you hadn't seen Pillow Talk? <laughs> I was going to say. I think is a bit of a testament to how good Down With Love is, that, if, that it, it still works even uh, free of context. But you certainly see what all they were pulling from and sort of affectionately uh satirizing and paying homage to and all that sort of thing it is a terrific terrific movie um but the stuff the stuff you said about uh um the gay sequence just reminded (laughs) me of those stories in like the celluloid closet where they said you know that that rock would have you know his 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 buddies over his buddies uh and they would watch his old movies in the screening room and have a good laugh at, at little sub texts and and the little winks and hints and things like that 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 were part of these films too which i think is is a a whole other fun way to watch it if you've ever seen the documentary rock hudson's home movies uh by mark rapaport it is a a really interesting uh compilation of a lot of that stuff which is fun i need to check that out i haven't seen that it's very good i think it's on kino's um streaming service at the moment all right, here we are. Num- number five, that's not number one, that's at the end of the alphabet, but still quite possibly the best of the 1959 movies. Aisha, what is your fifth and final pick of your top five? 
Well, I already hinted at it earlier, but this is the movie that actually got me into classic movies. Wow. Which is Some Like It Hot. Not since Scarface, so much action. Not since the Marx Brothers, so much comedy. Not since the seven-year itch, so much Marilyn. The best picture this year will also be the funniest. Good night, sugar. Good night, honey. I was 12 years old. I remember this so vividly when my grandmother, I was like spending the weekend with my grandmother and my cousins. Um, and she took us to Blockbuster and she like guided us to some movies and she picked out two movies. She picked out Bye Bye Birdie and Some Like It Hot. And she was like, oh yeah, I like those movies. And I also love Bye Bye Birdie. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Some Like It Hot was sort of where I fell in love with Marilyn Monroe and like the idea of her. And I yeah. thought it was so funny. I was like, oh, these two two men on the run wearing dresses and, and pretending to be women so that they don't get shot by these gangsters. And, and then Marilyn Monroe coming up and like her bosom is everywhere. And she's just like, <laughs> she's an alcoholic. And, you know, it's irresistible. I don't know why. Yes. Um, but but it just is. And it also really like sent me down a rabbit hole of Billy Wilder. I, I, to uh. me, if I had to pick my favorite director of like the classic Hollywood era, yeah. Billy Wilder would be probably within that top three. Um, absolutely. Yeah. I just, the fact that he could go between that like full on comedy, broad humor to the apartment the next year, like, it, it, come on, genius. Um, That's a run so, right there. Yeah. Such a run, such a run. So yeah, I love some like it hot. I love the just, the songs in it are great. The performances. And again, this is caboose jokes, caboose jokes. <laughs> yes. All over the place, all over the place. And this was a movie that actually was released without um, the certification of the production code. Oh, shit. And okay. Yeah. So like by that point, um, they had basically said, you know, a lot of things can be done on screen within reason or like, you know, if you're going to have like a gangster or someone, they have to get it, get it at the end, like all that morality stuff. Right. But homosexuality was still very much not an okay thing, but they released this without the approval of the production code and it didn't matter at the end. So yeah. like, and then after that, you see, you know, in the sixties where we're getting much more lax. And so some like it hot is considered to be sort of one of the final uh, death knells for, for all of that. And um I think that's just cool to think about. Uh, yeah. it's, it's just so, so fun. Yeah. God should ever, would every censorship death knell be as entertaining to watch as this one? Uh, um, seriously. What's what I think continues to be striking about it. Um, you know, and it's very easy to sort of, uh, wishful thinking post date our progressivism on older movies but man, it would be so easy to treat the Joey Brown character as a joke. And mm-hmm. it would be so easy for that whole subplot to just be just gay panic bullshit. And it's it's just not. It's just warm and funny and great. And like the reason that that is the greatest closing line, maybe in all of comedy, is because it's about kindness and understanding and uh 
and it's just funny, you know, like I, I, I don't know. Every time I watch the movie, I'm struck anew by how, how delicately and beautifully handled that entire element of the picture is. I love that about it so much. Yeah. Yeah. Still, still holds up. I think in, in many ways. I agree. I agree. All right. Well, Aisha, this is a beautiful top five list. Uh, and again, I saw a lot of, a lot of stuff I should have seen for the first time. And I always thank, always thank a guest who, who does that service for us. So thank you. Um, let's move on and find out what films were winning trophies and making money. Here's uh, Mike walking us through the awards and box office. Sell out with me. Oh yeah. Sell out with me tonight. Oscar winners, uh, the big, the big, the big headline, 1959, Ben Hur, best picture, best director for William Wyler, best actor for Charlton Heston, best supporting actor for Hugh Griffith, also won the Golden Globes from director, picture drama, and supporting actor Stephen Boyd. Ben Hur, I'm sure neither of you have seen it. <laughs> I, I have, no, I actually have not because the, the running time scares me. And it's a daunting running time. Yeah, it's a type of movie that I, I'd only want to watch if I was to see it on the big screen, like I waited until I could see Florence of Arabia on the big screen. Cause I was like, Same. I'm not that excited about it, but I, if I'm going to see it, I want to see it on a big screen. And I saw it at the Lincoln center for the 50th anniversary. It was fantastic. Uh, yeah. So yeah, no Ben Hur. I, I will tell you with Ben, I've not seen it either, but I went back. I was so compelled after pillow talk. I went back and rewatched the celluloid closet, which I've seen a gajillion times um really formative came out in you know on hbo when i was in college and like i watched it over and over and over on vhs and it was very formative in terms of like how you look at movies and how you decode movies and stuff like that anyway one of the best segments in it is the whole the, there's a chunk about ben-hur and gore vidal talking about uh how they 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 worked out a queer motivation for the primary conflict in that movie, but didn't tell Charlton Heston about it. Just told <laughs> Stephen Boyd to play yeah. it as though they had been lovers. Um, and uh, and that was what made the movie interesting. So anyway, uh, yeah, go ahead, Mike. Uh, Room at the Top won Best Actress for Simone Signore, Best Adapted Screenplay, also won Golden Globe and for Best Screenplay, and the BAFTA for Best Actress for Signore and Best Picture. I was just going to say, I haven't, I haven't seen Room at the Top. Um, I haven't either. All right, on we go. Yeah. <laughs> Dyer Van Frank won Best Supporting Actress for Shelley Winters. I've seen that one. I love Shelley Winters. I had to watch it in school. I think that was the only time I've seen it. But yes, yeah. One of the two Oscars in the famous story about her being asked to audition. And uh, Best Original Screenplay went to Pillow Talk. With all the performances in that movie, I wouldn't necessarily have nailed it for screenplay, but I'm not mad about it also, you yeah, know. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. It's the best you can ask for for a comedy. So there you go. Some other big award winners. Uh you mentioned it earlier, Black Orpheus won the Palm the Or it can. Mm-hmm. Uh Some Like It Hot won Golden Globes for Best Comedy, Best Actor Jack Lemon, and Best Actress, Marilyn Monroe. You know what? We talk plenty shit about the Golden Glows, but they were the only ones who gave her an award for that performance. So like I know. little tip of the hat to the Golden Globes on that one. Just that one time. Yes. <laughs> well, and, and the next one too. Jewish and Mexican actress Susan Koner won for playing a two-thirds probably black girl in Imitation of Life. <laughs> won the Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actress. Good performance. 
Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, Golden Globe for Best Actress went to Elizabeth Taylor for Suddenly Last Summer. Now that's a very Golden Globe thing to give Liz Taylor uh, a Best Actress award anytime you can. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen Suddenly Last Summer. It's not. It's yeah. that it's a bad performance, but it's a lot of performance. It's, it's, it's a, a lot. lot. <laughs> I, I I did. I remember watching it probably 15 years ago um, and being thought it was a little slow um but I, I need to go back and re revisit it and the golden globe for best actor went to anthony francoisa Fra francoisa franciosa that's an amazing name francioza okay yeah. uh anthony francioza won the golden globe for best actor for career i've not seen that one Film I've literally yeah, never heard of. Yeah. Yep. All right. On we yeah. go. Okay. Well, if you're looking for career uh, chat, this is not the podcast for you. Domestic <laughs> box office top 10. Uh, number 10 was Anatomy of a Murder. Yeah. 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 Good movie. Good, one. Good movie. Number nine, North by Northwest. Yay. I mean, a better yeah. movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, number eight was a tie between Rio Bravo and a nun story. I've never seen a nun story, but that that movie made a lot of waves when it came out, right? Yeah, I've I've actually have I seen a nun story? I don't think I have. I have seen Rio Bravo. Um, I have to course. say this tie at number eight is a very the two genders kind of tie. Um, <laughs> yes, yes. One, God, for love, one for the men. <laughs> I love fucking Rio Bravo so much. I've 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 seen it on Blu-ray. I've seen it theatrically. It is a fucking banger. Howard Hawks knew how to put a picture together. That's all I got. Yes, he did. Number seven was Suddenly Last Summer. Uh -huh. uh, number six, Imitation of Life. Well deserved. Number five, Pillow Talk. Yeah. Number four, do you want to guess while we're on a run here? Some like it hot. <laughs> you really had the really had the middle of the top ten figured out there, Aisha. I I, I finger on the pulse of this <laughs> this year that happened many years before I was born. <laughs> Number three, Operation Petticoat, baby. Operation oh. Petticoat. That's what this I think most people think of when they think 1959 movies. <laughs> yes, that'd be our A second war. Cary Grant on the list. Yes, second yes, Tony Curtis yes. too, right? That's Tony Curtis. On yes, the list? yeah, yeah, yeah. They're both yeah, yeah. they're both in that together. Which is funny because in Some Like It Hot, Tony Curtis is doing the Cary Grant impression. So. Like the, the most transparent Cary Grant impression ever. It's beautiful. Yes. Number two, the Shaggy Dog. The Shaggy Dog. Shaggy Dog? I mean... I fucked with the Shaggy Dog when I was in like like eight, nine years old. Hell yeah. Fred McMurray turning into a dog? Yeah, yeah. I'll watch that. Yeah. That was that that was an interesting time for Disney. Uh, it sure was. <laughs> generally speaking, I I didn't put Sleeping Beauty on my list, but you know that also was. Or wait, is that yeah. was that also in the top ten? Is that coming up? No, it was initially uh, number one. Oh. oh, sorry, number one. Go ahead. Yeah, we're at number one, which is really only interesting for the numbers. It was Ben Hur oh, uh, yeah. made thirty six million dollars in nineteen fifty nine money. Uh, which is $368 million adjusted. Pretty good. Wow. But also, it was four times as much as, as Shaggy Dog. So, like, <laughs> Ben-Hur didn't just win. Like, Ben-Hur was, like, racking up the points before half, you yeah. know? Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. Yes, yes, the, 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 the aforementioned James Cameron film of its day. All right. So uh, sandals, buddy. I mean, sandals, you got to buy a lot of sandals. They're not expensive one at a time. But when you got to yes. buy 10,000 pairs of sandals... Yeah, yes. that's a lot. Just can run and start racking up. And chariots? That that's that's just expensive. Horses, <laughs> horses, horses, horses. Okay. 
Um, all right. Well, thank you, Mike. And uh, Aishi, ready to do a lightning round? Yes. <laughs> we'll see how I do. We're going to put five minutes on the big clock. And here we go. The aforementioned Sleeping Beauty, which was a box office failure when it came out, later made its money in the re-releases. Where do you sit on Sleeping Beauty? Uh, it's not my favorite Disney and I'm, I'm a big Disney person, but you know, I think there were, there were better movies that came before and after, uh, I prefer 101 Dalmatians personally, oh, you know, same big, big, <laughs> big fucking same, uh, yes. Porgy and Bess came out in 1959. Okay. So most people have not been able to see this who are alive today because yeah. it's been out of print and I miss yep. the one like screening that they had in New York City a few years ago. Yeah. So I have not seen it. It really that's my like my Moby Dick, my white whale. White like, whale. I, want, I need to see this movie. So got it. Yeah. Uh, let me get to work on that for you. <laughs> uh the four hundred blows released in nineteen fifty nine. Uh yeah, I mean there's a reason it's a classic. Um I I I like it. I wouldn't say I love it, but I appreciate it. I admire it more than I, I love it. Did anybody watch it when it came out? Or was this like one of those, like, you know, 10 people bought the Velvet Underground records, but they all started a thousand oh, no, bands? No. <laughs> it was quite <laughs> successful here and and obviously in France, but here also uh, in the burgeoning art film scene. Also part of that burgeoning art film scene circa 1959, Hiroshima Mona Uh Yes, I do remember watching that in film school. I don't remember much about it. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> to be honest. Uh, 1959 also saw the release of John Cassavetti's Shadows. Another yes. film with uh, with some some uh, some themes, coming at some themes uh, about yeah. passing and dating and so forth. Yes. I actually, I really, really love that movie. And um, I rewatched it, I think, last year. Um, it's, it's, it's so interesting. It's so fascinating. I almost put it on this list. Odds Against Tomorrow, co-starring Harry Belafonte. Love it. It's great. Almost put it on my list. <laughs> Yay. God. Robert Ryan is um quite the villainous character in that one. Yes, yes. And also yeah. dealing with some interesting racial themes there. Like, you yes, know, indeed. this is this is a this is a moment. It's in the air. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh Sam Fuller's The Crimson Kimono. Have not seen that one. Frank Sinatra in A Hole in the Head. Yes, many, many years ago. Cannot tell you what it was about. <laughs> There's the, so many movies I watched on TCM when I was in middle school, high school, and like haven't revisited them, but I know I did watch that. <laughs> I am so jealous that you had access to TCM in middle school. Um, <laughs> uh, Edward D. Woods, Immortal Plan 9 from Outer Space. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> you know i get why people love to call it a cult classic and whatever it's it's fine it's not my favorite really terrible movie but i get it vincent price in the house on haunted hill yeah creepy still creepy i think and it's 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 vincent price not being he's not quite as campy as he could be in other right. movies and other roles he was you know i feel like he was playing a little bit more straight i don't know if that's <laughs> <laughs> so, to, least, so to speak so to speak yes 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 compulsion co-starring orson wells uh based on the uh the you know that murder case those when those guys killed those killed that kid 
Oh, the uh, yes, I, Leopold and uh, yes, thank you, Leopold. Whatever. And Rope, yes, yes, yes. Uh, I have not seen that though. I have seen Rope, which is also loosely based on that. Yes, indeed, it was. Yes. Uh, the aforementioned Operation Petticoat. Yeah, that's fine. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Again, it's it's one of the. I'm not a huge war movie of that era, like really ever, but in that period in particular, I'm. I, I don't really find many of those war movies to be uh, all that interesting or military adjacent movies. And finally, uh, from the aforementioned squeaky Disney period, Darby O'Gill and the Little People. I'm so glad you mentioned this movie. <laughs> I remember watching this on the Disney Channel when I was a kid and being like, what is this movie? <laughs> Uh, <laughs> and apparently a lot of Irish people don't like it because it's just yeah. stereotypes about Irish people. Um, I, mean, I haven't gone back. <laughs> I am an Irish person and this is, yes, this is like a hundred minute Lucky Charms commercial. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So yeah, I have not gone back and rewatched it since I was a kid. So I'm sure I would see all of those stereotypes. <laughs> way before me. I, I, I can't remember the last time I brought up Darby O'Gill and the Little People and anybody knew what the fuck I was talking about. So thank you for that. Thank you for that. Good lightning round. Thank you, Aisha. Thank you. So before we wrap up, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your forthcoming tome, Wannabe Reckonings with the Pop Culture That Shapes Me, which will be out this summer. Yes, it does feel like a tome, or at least like I've spent so much time working on it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a collection of essays, all original, and it really kind of walks through my relationship with pop culture. It's a part memoir, part criticism, um, and really thinking about the things that I grew up with, everything from the black best friend in movies and TV shows like mm -hmm. um, Save the Last Dance and Clueless and mm -hmm. uh, 10 Things I Hate About You. Um, and she's all that. Uh, and then I also touch on other things like the uh, franchisification uh, of Hollywood and how everything just keeps being remade and rebooted and reheated in every way possible. <laughs> um, and then like even more personal things like about my name and my relationship to it and how I've struggled with it and uh, connected to a Stevie Wonder song. It's just kind of, you know, me looking at pop culture and really interrogating how it's um, affected me and how others, how it's affected our society and how we interact with each other online. There's a lot going on, but I'm, I'm really happy with it and pleased with it and excited to get it out in the world. Well, I cannot wait to read it. Aisha, you've been one of my favorite writers for a very, very long time. I do have to ask, I mean, if it's a, if it's personal, um, <laughs> is there any, is there a Santa essay in there or, or do we, do we get into uh, that moment <laughs> in your life? Uh, funny enough. Yes. There is a, ah. a, a moment where I reflect on, uh, the great Santa debacle of 2013, uh, <laughs> Megan, if in case, I mean, I don't know how many people remember this, but Megan Kelly telling kids that Jesus and Santa were white was because assuring. I wrote a, assuring them, assuring uh, because... them, comforting them. <laughs> yes. It's a, the, 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 that's the tone is one of look, kids, just know this crazy lady at Slate is off a rocker. <laughs> Santa is white. Like, I mean, it's that 
patronizing. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I, yeah. I definitely, I get into that, but it's, it's, Good. it's about more than just that. It's about sort of how we uh, still believe, how we don't let, in many ways, our myths and fantasies evolve beyond the traditional or the the old ways of doing things and um mm. yeah it's uh <laughs> santa's in there Megan yay <laughs> <laughs> i look i really do i look i look forward so much to reading it i should tell folks where they can uh read you and where they can hear you and all that good stuff in the intro yes well you can find me on npr at pop culture happy hour podcast uh i'm one of the co-hosts it's fun we're five days a week and we talk about movies and tv and books and music and yeah. also you can sort of find me on twitter i, I don't know when i you look we're in the new year now when we're recording <laughs> this it still exists which i'm surprised about uh so for now you can, every you can, <laughs> every wrap up we've done the last month and a half has been like this we're like maybe it'll still be there <laughs> i know i know so yeah crafting my style is my twitter handle and then you can also find me on instagram at a h a Eight eight. Um, so yeah, that's that's me. Yay! Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. We had such a good time talking with you and enjoying these films and so forth. If you had a good time too, dear listener, please rate and review our program. It just helps us get right out there and 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 cuts through all the. There's Mike. What was the most recent count? Thirty bajillion podcasts. So your your rate and review helps uh, helps us get uh, seen and heard a little bit better. Also, Bailey, you have a hater. Do you know this? I, I I'm sure I have more than one. I mean, <laughs> you have at least one hater. Where every time we start a podcast, within the first yes. two days, it has a one star review. Yes, yes. And, like we haven't even put out anything but a three minute fucking trailer. Nope. nope. So like. Maybe I have a hater, but I think it's probably, it's more likely you. So we need people that don't hate Jason Bailey. Uh, to, like, it's fine if you listen to the show and you want to give us a one-star review. Like, uh, it's kind of a dick move. Like, you can just, you know, move on. But it's not the end of the world. But, like, they don't need, there's not even material for them to listen to yet. It's not fair. All I would say is this. If the, if I only have one, we should count ourselves lucky. Um, <laughs> where you can follow us is uh, I'm sort of I'm I, my New Year's resolution. Actually, Aisha, is to like to not post to just only go when I when there's a new episode of this or a new piece uh, that's that's not on Twitter. But you can follow those at Jason Dash Bailey on Twitter or I'm much more active these days on Instagram at fun city cinema mike where can people find you i am at brainwashed lib on twitter and mike before we go what is your favorite movie of 1959 my favorite movie is araya uh a-r-a-y-a i think actually you took me to this movie for the first time i saw oh, it in shit. new york in a theater and i think you took me okay. uh and it is like documentary as science fiction it was made by like this one lady she had like a camera dude and like her editor back home and that's like the whole fucking crew. And it is just an incredible, it's it's shot in the salt mines of Venezuela. Um, and it is just an absolutely remarkable, beautiful movie. It becomes very human. At some point, you know, you get into the characters and you start to learn about their lives. But there's whole sections of the movie that are documentary as science fiction um, in really the best way possible. And you can watch it for free on Canopy with Library Card. What's your favorite movie of 1959, Jason Bailey? 
I, you know, I'm a Cassavetes head at heart and I just, I gotta go with shadows, which is like, which is everything that I want in a movie from the fifties. It's like, it's New York, it's jazz, it's scrappy and messy and, uh, emotions are all over the damn place. And the, uh, oh God, I always fuck her name up. Lila Goldoni. I'll, I'm sure I'm pronouncing it wrong, but who plays the main woman in that movie is like the fact that she didn't become a giant movie star is sort of astonishing to me because she's so charismatic and so naturalistic and so beautiful. Uh, it's really a terrific performance. So that is mine. Thank you again for coming on the show, Aisha. Thank you, Jason and Mike. It's been fun. <laughs> thank you, Mike. Thank you, Jason. And thank you for listening. Sweet and clear. It was a very 